Hello, welcome to the Reforming Worship Podcast, brought to you by the Church of Philadelphia in Traverse City, Michigan. The 21st century Reformation cry for the Christian church to return to the scriptures and worship God as he has prescribed in the Bible. I'm Andrew Smitty, your host and content manager, introducing Pastor Caleb Leach as we conclude this sub-series on God's sovereignty. Thanks, Andrew. This uh, is... Yeah. Was I not supposed to do that? No, that's fine. Go ahead. Man. Okay. We're live. All right, we're live. All right. <laughs> We're still getting good at this thing. You love it when your when your content manager goes. Um, <laughs> oh man, I'll, I can't wait to find out what I did. All right, we're talking about God's sovereignty. All right, we started out talking about uh, really. Um, for many, it's going to be a new way of looking at Christianity, but that is part of the goal of this podcast is to show you that this is this is not new. This is this is. Um, this goes back to every administration of the covenant of grace and the God's faithfulness to his people in every administration of the covenant of grace. The first thing we need to get out of our heads is that there are multiple covenants of grace. There are not. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Moses and Abraham were Christians, but more on that later. We were talking about, um, for I delivered to you of that of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And uh, our congregation does that a lot. We'll, we'll say that from the front and everybody will join in, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. So after kind of laying out everything we wanted to say, uh, now we're going to go defend it. Um, that first episode was kind of a kind of a call to return to biblical worship. Now, from there, we, we have to establish the first according to the Scriptures, the inerrancy, the, the infallibility of the Scriptures. Now, Christ died for our sins. Now, who's the R? What did Christ actually do by dying and rising again? It's so common to hear that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, that's the gospel. No, it's not. It's The bookends on either side are according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. Everything culminates in Christ died, was buried, and rose again. But that is not uh, that is not the extent that Paul is talking about. In the real sense, we search the scriptures for our, for our entire lives to find out everything that it means that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. From there, um, we talked about the atonement just for one. We're going to do another sub-series on the atonement so we know that we're all talking about the same thing. Um, Christ dying for our sins. What? Who's the hour? Did Christ's death actually accomplish anything, or did he make salvation a hypothetical possibility? Is it Christ did everything necessary for you to choose him, or does Christ actually save his people? That's what we're going to be talking about today. And of course, it's it's it's, it's equally as important to finish it. That he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's where the hermes, the Christocentric hermeneutic comes in. That is where. We understand in Luke all the law, all the prophets, all the writings spoke of Jesus. That was his, that was Jesus Christ's first Sunday morning sermon. Now, for all you pastors out there, and I hope you're listening, what was your first sermon as pastor? Uh, were you going through a series? Was there something you wanted to address? Was there was there a, a pressing subject on your mind? Was it your favorite favorite pet doctrine? Isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ, his Sunday morning sermon was that all the law, all the prophets, all the writings spoke of him. His Sunday evening sermon to the disciples all locked up because they're, they're afraid of what's going to happen to him next. He comes and he opens their mind to understand the scripture. What does he open their mind to understand? All the law, all the prophets, all the writings. So 
if you're reading the First Testament and you're not seeing Jesus, you're reading it wrong. That's basically the crux of what we're saying. If we're going to recover Christian worship, we have to realize that the New Testament by itself was not written to tell us how to worship God. It was That's not the purpose. We worship one God. He was God over every administration of the covenant of grace. When we see the fulfillment of Christ, we're not saying the New Testament isn't necessary or sufficient. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that when we see these things in the fulfillment of Christ, we need to understand we're worshiping the same God. He's just as holy as he ever was. His law is holy. His law transcends every dispensation of man. When we say dispensation, we're not talking about different ways that God dealt with his people. Basically, covenantalism, which is what I'm articulating, some would say hyper-covenantalism, this brand of covenantalism is is rare. Its basic assertion, is, other than dispensationalism, is not that God spoke to his people differently in different times. It's that we changed, not God. We grew into maturity. God didn't change. Right, the training wheels came off. We can eat shellfish now. <laughs> right, it, the Lord fulfilled the law. He didn't come to do away with any part of it. He came to fulfill it. Do you still obey the dietary laws? Yes, in the fulfillment of Christ, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But there's so much more to talk about His law. But nothing I said, not the inerrancy of Scripture, not penal substitutionary atonement, not particular redemption, not. The Christocentric hermeneutic, none of that makes any sense if we don't get down pat what we're saying when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. That's why we're wrapping it up here today. That's why we're really kind of going for the jugular on this. Because I haven't met a Christian, I've heard some on YouTube, but I haven't met a Christian that says, I don't believe that God is sovereign. No, everybody believes God is sovereign. The thing is, when we go to define what sovereignty is, it's absolutely amazing to me that people can miss entirely what we're saying. You can redefine sovereignty to be something other than sovereign at all. It's incredible. God's so sovereign, he won't violate my free will. Well, what does that mean? Okay, let's talk about this for a second, because there's a sense I could agree with that. You'll hear Orthodox people um, in the Reformed community go, God has a purpose and a plan. Well, who does that rule out? There are plenty of people that think that God looked down the corridors of time. Was I don't know if he was shocked to find out he won in the end or not, but basically he knows the, he knows the end results and can make those things happen. There's the modalistic idea that um, – uh, uh, Molinism, rather. There's the idea that God's uh, weaving everybody's free choices together to make his ideal outcome come about. And then there's, a, there's a, the Calvinistic Augustinian – it's not really fair to call it that because it was certainly Isaiah's position. It was certainly Job's position is that God decrees the end from the beginning from ancient times. Things not yet done saying my purpose will stand. I will do all that's in my pleasure. It's high time that we stop calling anything else sovereignty. It's not, it doesn't exist. Uh, it, there's a, there's an exhaustively sovereign God or you don't have a God that's sovereign. That's the sense in which we mean it. So our first time we were just talking about what sovereignty was our first, our, our first, uh, our first installment. And then um, past that, we started talking about God's sovereignty in general. What does the word of God say about God's sovereignty? What does the word of God say about the lot is cast into the lap, right? If I flip a coin right now, whether it comes up heads or tails, is that by the sovereignty of God or is that something that he foresaw or foreknew in some uh, some simplistic way? We looked at the exhaustiveness of God's sovereignty, 
Uh, here's one that everybody needs to memorize. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there were none of them. Now, that's what we want to talk about. The sovereignty of God is that of an author over his writing. God has told his story. Ephesians 1.11 says he predestines all things after the counsel of his will. Now, that, that doesn't leave anything out. We're, we're talking about an author writing his story, a, a good and holy uh, master of the pen teaching us how he's going to glorify himself in time. Uh, in, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. That was the psalmist's case. That's my case. That is your case today. We are in a story that has already been written. Now, why is that important to, to mention? Well, we talked about that in our first installment, but just to go over it briefly, if God is in the creation and he's just muscling everybody, <laughs> he's just grabbing them by the scruff of the neck and making them believe or making them reject the gospel or something, well, then, yeah, that, that God would be a monster. And uh, it's not really fair, but that's what a lot of Arminians think that we believe or a lot of non-Calvinists think we believe. It's not really fair to be told what you believe by the opposing theology, now, let me just reassure you, that's not what we believe at all. We actually don't believe that harm is done to the will of the creature. That what God has decreed that we would do, he decrees that we would do freely. Now, how does he do that? Well, because he's not in the creation. He's writing the story, right? C.S. Lewis re- writes about Peter, Edmund, uh, Lucy, and Susan, all right? And the white witch, all right? He made the evil just as well as the good. And the more he writes, the the, the more different the characters get, the, how they each have their own personality, how they each have their own wills. As C.S. Lewis writes, the freer the character gets. So God, as he has created Satan just as he's created you, he's not waiting for you to make a decision to follow him, nor is he needing to be acquitted of the problem of evil. The problem of evil is only a problem if it doesn't have, have, a, have a resolution to it. We know that there will be a resolution to it because we understand the character of the author. If you're reading a book, any book, and you get halfway through and decide this is too dark, I don't want to read this anymore, and then you set it down and you never go back to it, what you did is a statement not about the book. You don't know how it ends. You stopped reading it. You just made a statement about the character of the author. Can we trust God with a problem of evil? Yes, because on the final day when he is vindicated, evil will not be a problem. Remember, the worst evil anybody ever did was to Jesus Christ. And against Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Jews, and the Roman soldiers, they gathered together against your Holy One, against your Christ, to do what your hand predestined to occur. Yes, Jesus predestined the evil that happened to Jesus, and his character was untouched. Our third installment, we were talking about how God is sovereign over evil. Now, I hope you don't listen to this recap and then go back running to to uh, to uh, installment number three. That would that would not be a good thing. We have to we have to actually talk about what sovereignty means. What are we actually saying about God? And does the scriptures say the same thing? And I'm assuring you that they do. So when when we see that God is completely sovereign over evil, you got to ask yourself a lot of questions. How come it's not this, uh, an evil spirit from Satan is bugging Saul, but it's an evil spirit from the Lord? Why isn't Satan putting a lying spirit in the heart of the prophets? No. First Kings 22 is saying that God put a lying spirit in the heart of the prophets. Does God lie? No. He's, he's created 
these evil characters to do his bidding, ultimately his bidding. Again, if you're trying to, uh, if you're trying to, to make a perfect work of art, you try to get all the imperfections out of it, right? Uh, when you when you're trying to when you when you're trying to uh, bring about something that's truly beautiful, just to behold with your eyes, you're tr- you're looking for imperfections. You're trying to take the imperfections out. But when you're writing the perfect story, you're going to ruin it if you do away with all of the evil without vindicating the main character. So why did God create? He created to glorify Himself. And we talk about how God's character is untouched as the orderer and the controller of sin. God rose up Assyria to judge Israel and then judged Assyria for all the atrocities they did to Israel while they were judging them in Isaiah 10. I didn't say it wasn't going to be offensive. I'm just telling you that that's what the, that's what the word of God says. And God kept Abimelech from touching Sarah. Sarah was a beautiful woman, and Abimelech was the king of the Philistines, and he took her into his harem. He was going to marry her. Um, God says, I kept you from sinning against me. God is sovereign over the sexual urges of a pagan king. If God doesn't stop evil, it's not because of uh, the free will of the creature might be offended. If God doesn't stop evil, God, uh, God has a purpose. And so that's our great comfort is that no matter what happens, God has a purpose in bringing about that evil. He doesn't have a purpose. He'll make something good come out of it. No, he has a purpose in bringing it about. So let's not get hung up on um, let's not get hung up on our challenges and our our hardships that come our way. Let's remember who sent them to us. All of that to say, God is sovereign over salvation. He's sovereign over all things. He tells the waves come this far no further. He brings about. All natural catastrophes. He's declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times and not yet done, saying, My purpose will stand. I will do all that's in my pleasure. He predestines all things after the counsel of his will. He wrote down the story of my days when yet there were none of them. If evil befalls a city, did I, not the, did I the Lord, not cause it? I form the light. I create darkness. I create peace and create calamity. That's a really nice translation of barachra. I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, he never created evil directly. There was never a uh, let there be evil. But at the same time, evil is brought about by the created order. It's there because God wants it there. None of that means anything to us. That can actually be mistaught or misinterpreted into hard fatalism if we don't really bring it home to God is sovereign over salvation. This also means that God is sovereign over reprobation. That is Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil or the day of destruction, maybe your translation says. Um, also, Second uh, Peter 2 talks about those who were marked out long ago for this condemnation. Um, so uh, we want to avoid the, the error of equal ultimacy. God is not going through creation going die, 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 live, die, 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 you know, unbelieve, unbelieve, unbelieve. Okay, you believe. He's not going through his created order. He's not damning um, the vast majority of humanity in a positive sense. Keep in mind, it's a very different um, act of grace to bring somebody out of their fallen state than to leave them in their fallen state. Nevertheless, both are predestined by the hand of God. Proverbs 16.4 was already read. Ephesians 2, 5 through 10. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
We were dead in our transgressions and our sins, not mortally wounded, not um, uh, not uh, un- unwilling, but not unable. No, we were we were dead. We we were gone in our transgressions and sins. There's a there's three ways to look at this. The Pelagian view of salvation. Uh, I'm going to use the pit analogy, and if you're looking for where I got it from, it's from R.C. Sproul's the the holiness of God. Um, in this pit. Uh, Pelagius saw a man standing there going, how am I going to get out of this pit called my sin or called being separate from God? And um, in, in Pelagianism, Jesus jumps down into the pit and says, let me show you the way out of here. And he climbs up and you climb up after him. Right? Grace is not necessary. In the semi-Pelagian sense, and I, I'm going to be just as confrontational as I can because I hear I hear people, really incredibly ungodly and undisciplined people like Leighton Flowers and others, try to try to excuse themselves of the uh, of the uh, they call it a straw man of calling them semi Pelagian. Yet all of those Southern Baptist provisionalists, they're literally saying that just um, the, the the gospel call alone is sufficient; no external grace is needed. I'm sorry, that's not even semi-Pelagianism. You're really bordering on the first one. And uh, have me onto your show. Um, let me know how to get in touch with you. You can come on here if you're uh, if you if you'd rather be on a small potatoes program. That's fine too. Um, but show us show us how that's not the case. So all you Southern Baptist provisionalists, all you Arminians, all you semi-Pelagians, everybody who thinks that it's God plus somebody. They have a different pit analogy. They're in the pit too, but unlike Pelagius, that guy's not perfectly fine going, how do I get out of here? That guy is mortally wounded. Now, in uh, provisionalism, he's got a sprained ankle, right? Uh, in uh, more orthodox forms of Christianity, he's mortally wounded and about to die. So there are varying degrees as to how incapacitated the man at the bottom of the pit is. But let's give the most orthodox reading possible. Let's say this man is about to die. He's gasping for air. He can barely get up. Jesus jumps down into the pit, heals him, and then raises uh, raises him out of the pit. And, of course, he then um, there's a decision factor there. Uh, either he's doing the seven sacraments of Rome or he's repenting and believing or he's making the choice to believe and then God gives him the gift of repentance. There are variants in the semi-Pelagian view. There's a whole scope. But basically, man's mortally wounded, but he's not so dead in his trespasses and sins that he can't choose God or ascend to Jesus. Um, and that's where they get, oh, no, 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 salvation's only of the Lord. No, 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 I didn't have anything to do with my salvation. And they, they really believe that they're giving that an honest hearing. They, they really do. Um, and I would say a lot of them are truly Christians. They just have not been challenged as to what grace is. Uh, but I will go this far. Anybody holding that view does not know what grace is. They don't understand grace. Then there is the view that is unique to the word of God. And when I say it's unique to the word of God, I mean Paul clearly taught it, but more than that, Jesus clearly taught it. And I would go back a lot further to show that this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. You're dead. And didn't I just read that? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
right? You're not at the bottom of the pit asking for help from Jesus. You're not pacing the bottom of the pit wondering how to get out of here. You're not mortally wounded gasping gasping for your last breath before you prayed the sinner's prayer <laughs> or anything else like that or any other superstitious nonsense that's not in the Word of God. By, by the way, confessing to a priest is every bit as biblical as praying the sinner's prayer, okay? Neither one exists. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to give an introductory prayer. I'm, I'm just saying that that's not where it ends. That's not Jesus getting a hold of your life. No, you're not in the bottom of the pit wanting salvation at all. You are a skeleton at the bottom of a pit. There, you have the rib cage sticking out from the ground, and there's a little daisy growing out of where your heart was. I'm, I'm sorry, my content manager just told me it was better to say tulip. There's a tulip coming out of your chest. Um, but uh, what Jesus does is he raises you to spiritual life like the valley of the dry bones. He causes you. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is the context of for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, Are you predestined to salvation? Yes, but you're also predestined to live consistently with that salvation. And how do you live consistently with that salvation? I'm so glad you asked. There is the highway of obedience. Obedience is faith's natural course. And then when you get off of that highway, the on-ramp is repentance. Repent and believe. All right. Ezekiel 36, here's the promise of the, Old, of the Old Testament. And that's why I really don't like the last, the, the analogy, the pit analogy. That's what, really why I don't appreciate the last one being called Calvinistic. All right, it was around a lot longer, long before Calvin was. And Calvin knew it too. That's why the poor guy tried to die in an unmarked grave because they were already trying to name stuff after him. It was, it's really unfortunate. Here's Ezekiel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you back into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinance. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all the uncleanness, and I will cause the grain to multiply upon you. I will not... Bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the trees and the produce of the fields so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil deeds. If you tuned out, tune back in. Verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded. For your ways, O house of Israel. 
This is why it was necessary for an 11-minute introduction. Why did God create? To glorify himself. Is he in creation or is he outside of creation? He inhabits eternity. His name is holy. Is he time-bound in order to learn to look down the quarters of time? No. He inhabits eternity. He's written for us our days when yet there were none. How does his sovereignty interact with free choice? He just declared the end from the beginning, the ancient times, from things not yet done, saying my purpose will stand. Um, is there any realm, is there any sense, is there any length to where the sovereignty of God does not reach? No. Ephesians one eleven. he predestines all things after the counsel of his will. So how does God glorify himself amongst his people? He, cleans, he, he sprinkles them with clean water. I love that term, sprinkling, don't you, Andrew? <laughs> he sprinkles them with clean water, and they're clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, and I will cause you. What else does the poor guy have to say? I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will carefully, and you will be careful to observe my ordinance. Not for your sake do I do this, O house of Israel. And it's not your repentance. Look at what he does. Sprinkles you with clean water, cleanses you from all your filthiness and all your idols, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh, causes you to obey him. And it's not until verse 31 that you remember the evil that your deeds uh, were doing and that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in in your sight for all your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, declares the Lord. Yeah. What has to happen before anybody will ever repent? In the Reformed tradition, we call it regeneration. Heart of stone comes out, heart of flesh comes in. Now, someone who's alive is going to worship God, he's going to repent, he's going to believe, and he's going to be caused to obey. So, more on that here in a moment. Um, a lot of times you'll hear people say, you Calvinists and by the way, not everybody who believes God is sovereign over salvation is a Calvinist. I mean, Calvinism has a lot more to say about about the covenant of grace, about the nature of the church, about how to worship. But we got to start somewhere, huh? And uh, and uh, w- what we want to do is we want to just we want to make sure that we're laying the foundation. So, um, a lot of times people will tell Calvinists when I'm starting to say there. People will say, God forces you to believe. God forces you to come to him. God God forces you to be saved. And that's kind of a misnomer. If I raise somebody from the dead, nobody's going nobody's gonna to quabble about uh, was his free will left intact. No, they're just going to be amazed that somebody was raised from the dead. Now, to raise somebody from the dead is a claim of deity or at least to be the agent of Yahweh. Um, so that I don't think that will be happening too much in this administration of the covenant of grace, although we should not rule it out. It would be very strange though. It wouldn't have the same wouldn't have the same uh it wouldn't have the same design. It wouldn't communicate the same thing as it would have in Acts. But that um Orthodox cessationism is a topic for another day. But when people say, God forced you to believe, it's like, no, God raised me from the dead. Yeah, but you didn't have a choice in it. Yes, praise God. Um, I can't, if I was the best salesman in the world, I still would not be successful over in Oakland Cemetery. They're dead. They can't choose me. God has to, cho- God has to choose me before I choose him. 
the response is not, you violated my free will. The response is gratitude. Just be thankful. You were dead and now you're alive. Maybe you're out there going, I, I don't get this. I, I was rejecting God my whole life and I heard the gospel call and, and I chose Jesus. I mean, my testimony will show you I chose Jesus. And I just want to tell you, dear friend, let me as a heralder of the gospel tell you the reason you chose Jesus is because he chose you. I grew up in the church. I was in the charismatic movement, and then I was all over the place. I genuinely thought I was in Christ. <laughs> I, I genuinely did. I chose Jesus every day of my life. It did not matter until Jesus chose me. That's the difference. God is so humble, he'll even let you think you chose him. I'm telling you, why did you choose him then and not at any other time? Why didn't you reject him like so many others? Are you better than they are? Are you are you are you more spiritually sensitive? Are you, are you are you just more discerning in general, or is the difference between you and somebody who doesn't believe? Ephesians one, the kind intention of His will. For those of you who are already you're listening to this and you already agree with what I'm saying, can you put that in your understanding when people ask you, why did God choose you and not somebody else? Just tell them that, the kind intention of his will. Any other reason? Nope, that's it. God is not a respecter of persons. God did not choose me because I was choice in some way. God did not choose me because I was more spiritually sensitive. God did not choose me because I got a clearer call of the gospel. Right? If you are chosen, if you chose Jesus, it's because he already chose you. Now, how do you know you didn't choose him falsely? Read the word of God. Unbelievers hate the God of the Bible. If you if your if your blood is boiling at the sound of me saying some of these things, you might not know him. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. These are the words of Jesus Christ himself in John six thirty seven through forty four. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You got that? The Father gives a people to the Son, and the Son never casts those people out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You hear that? What's the will of God? That everyone who believes the Son and believe, beholds the Son and believes on him have eternal life, and that Christ raised them up. Verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. <laughs> this, this is a fantastic sermon to preach if you want people to grumble about you. All right. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble amongst yourself. Hear this. If you tuned out, tune back in. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is there anything constraining the Father um, from giving Christ uh, all people? Um, is there anything external to the Father uh, telling him who to pick and who not to pick. Um, what is this great and glorious grace that we see? Remember what we read in Ezekiel. It's not for our sake that he does it. 
you got to get that out of your head. You weren't just so adorable caught up in your trespasses and sin that Jesus just had to at least give you a way out. You know, no, I have to give them a shot. If they choose me, well, then, no. God did this for the holiness of his own name. Here's the thing. The judge of all the earth will do right. we got to stop being concerned. The Bible says he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. We need to not be so surprised about hated Esau. Hated Esau makes perfect sense. Loved Jacob is the amazing part. The just judge of all the earth can damn us all right now and nobody would be able to blink. There would be no injustice in him for doing that. If he never gave us a way of salvation, that is exactly what Adam and his posterity deserve. The amazing thing is, is that God didn't just want in this story to demonstrate his wrath and his justice. He also wanted to display his mercy and his kindness. So why you? I don't know. You want... Predestination election is not a mystery. God's sovereignty over evil is not a mystery. It's really easy to understand. It goes down hard, but it's really easy to understand. Um, these things are not huge and massive doctrine. Yes, God, dec- God's decree brought about the coronavirus. Yes, it's perfectly true. You know, <laughs> actually, we both had it, <laughs> and thank God we didn't have the real flu, huh? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to say that. Feel free to edit that if you want. Um, but. Uh, God, yes, the sovereignty, the sovereign decree of God brought about the coronavirus and blessed be his name. He will be glorified in it. How? I don't know. None of these things are deep mysteries. They're not. They're not hard to understand. You want a mystery? Here's a mystery. You will never understand this. You ready? Jesus loves you. If you're truly in him. Are you saying he doesn't love the unbeliever? No, the word of God says he doesn't love the unbeliever. Sins don't get thrown into hell. Sinners do. God does not forgive sin. You have to stop saying that. He forgives sinners who are drawn to the Son by the Father and raised up on the last day. Your sin either is dealt with or will be dealt with. If your sin isn't dealt with in Calvary, it will be dealt with in eternity in hell. And maybe you're really, really sharp and you're going, wait a second, this is why you're going to do a mini-series on the atonement right after this. You're saying that Jesus only died for those who will repent and believe. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Listen to this. On what basis does the Father draw a particular people to the Son? Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able, speaking of Christ, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does always mean in the scope of eternity? Well, the context of Hebrews 7 is that the high priest has a cessation of ministry because he's dead at some point. But our high priest, our high priest, he lives, always lives to make intercession for his people. Now, I've had... Plenty of people say he starts interceding for you once you, quote-unquote, get saved. Um, that's, that's an amazing statement. I don't know how a God that inhabits eternity, who lives completely outside of time, uh, can start or stop anything. Uh, he's not bound by time. If he was, time would be preexistent with him. Time would therefore be greater than him because of its limitations he has to operate within. 
No, Jesus, before you were ever born, before he knit you in your mother's womb, Jesus was making intercession for you. If you're truly in him, he was making intercession for you. And he always will be. He doesn't start at a particular point in time. And maybe you're one of those believers who are concerned about losing your state with Christ. There are plenty of false converts. There are plenty of people who who genuinely, uh, as far as their own feelings go, they genuinely fall after, follow after Christ, but they haven't actually been regenerated. They don't actually have the new heart. It's just a temporary thing. They fall away. And that's not talking about how genuine their decision was at the beginning. I'm sure it was genuine. My point is, if Christ isn't the one keeping you by his intercession, you will fall away. That's my only hope, is that Christ keeps me by his intercession. But yeah, if you're one of those people who thinks you can lose your standing with Christ, then what? Does Christ stop interceding for you? Never mind, Dad, he's a jerk? I mean, like, what does that even look like? Can Christ make a priestly office... Uh, can Christ execute his priestly office on behalf of a sinner and then say, never mind, later? Can he, can he just take his hands off of his own atonement? Furthermore, if Christ died for everybody, what's anybody in hell for? He already paid that punishment, didn't he? And that brings us back to what we've talked about at a previous point. If God forgives sinners just because he feels like it, He's no longer a just judge. He's a crooked judge that's winking at criminals. He's not holy anymore. Unless Christ pays for the wrath of God in their place. Unless Christ bears the wrath of God in their place, there is no remission of sin. He's simultaneously, if you don't get anything else out of this, please hear this. Christ is simultaneously the sacrifice for sin and the high priest officiating over that sacrifice. He then goes into the Holy of Holies to make intercession. Therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I don't like to cross-reference, but here's some good stuff to think about. Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yes and amen. And then here's the one people miss, and Merry Christmas, by the way, to everybody out there, especially to people who think that Sol Invictus, as the pagans were were uh, were utilizing it had anything to do with the Christian Christmas? That's just embarrassing. Then, if you're scared of a Christmas tree, shame on you. Um, Jer- <laughs> that's not what Jeremiah was talking about. But so, just to offend all the Judaizers out there, let's say it again: Merry Christmas. And here's my favorite Christmas passage: She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Not just the consequ- not just the consequences of their sins. He won't just save them in spite of their sins. He's going to save them and it's going to bring about a fruit of holiness. And for all my brothers and sisters out there who actually are walking with Christ and you think it's a free will decision that you're walking in holiness right now, take heed lest you fall. Repent. Go repent for your holiness. Here, you heard it here first. And go tell the Lord. <laughs> go tell the Lord. Now, I'm not saying go sin bravely. I'm not saying stop your pursuit of holiness. Just tell the Lord, Lord, I thought my resisting sin was of my own free will. I see now that you were keeping me from my sin. And I repent in dust and ash. I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke of things which I did not know. 
If there's anything I haven't done against you, your hand has restrained me. That would be a good prayer to pray. That would be a good thing to remember. And if the Lord is letting you fall into sin, what is he, what's, he, uh, what's his purpose in that? Is he exposing you as a false believer? Maybe. It's far more likely that you have yet to surrender completely to the majesty of his sovereignty. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God that works both in you and through you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Everybody knows Philippians 2.12. seems like nobody knows Philippians 2.13 because it's God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He doesn't make you obey like a robot. He fixes your will. Do you guys have, even if you're just mad at me and you can't wait to email us at reformingworship at gmail.com to talk about getting on the show and debating me or maybe you just want to leave a nasty message or something, that's fine too. I hope we get some reactions from this. I really do. I hope this isn't just another teaching that you falsely harmonize with what you've already been taught because trust me, it's probably antithetical unless you grew up in the Reformed tradition, in which case count yourself the most blessed. But even some of Reformed traditions, I don't know. Just ask the Lord. I don't care if you're rejoicing in this message or if you're mad about it or anything else. Just ask the Lord. Lord, you are Lord over my will. God, be Lord over my will. Cause me to desire what you desire. Cause me to walk in your statutes, to keep them and do them. Cause me to repent and give me even greater faith. So if God is sovereign, then he's Lord of all. If he's Lord of all, he's Lord of your will. He's Lord of evil. He's Lord of everything in heaven and on earth. Ask the Lord to heal your will. All right. Thanks, Pastor Caleb. Thank you for tuning in to Reforming Worship for another update. See you next week as we conclude our mini-series and continue making progress through this season's outline set forth in Episode 1. Be blessed and stay vigilant out there.